0: This is chapter fourteen of Pudd'nhead Wilson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Tragedy of Pudd'nhead Wilson by Mark Twain. Chapter fourteen. Roxana insists upon reform. The true southern watermelon is a boon apart, and not to be mentioned with commoner things. It is chief of this world's luxuries, king, by the grace of God, over all the fruits of the earth. When one has tasted it, he knows what the angels eat. It was not a southern watermelon that Eve took. We know it because she repented. PUDDINHEAD WILSON'S CALENDAR About the time that Wilson was bowing the committee out, Pembroke Howard was entering the next house to report. He found the old judge sitting grim and straight in his chair, waiting. "'Well, Howard, the news?' "'The best in the world.' "'Accepts, does he?' And the light of battle gleamed joyously in the judge's eye. "'Accepts? Why, he jumped at it! Did he? Did he? Now, that's fine, that's very fine. I like that. When is it to be?' "'Now. Straight off. Tonight. An admirable fellow, admirable!' admirable he's a darling why it's an honor as well as a pleasure to stand up before such a man come off with you Uh, go and arrange everything and give him my heartiest compliments a rare fellow indeed an admirable fellow as you have said i'll have him in the vacant stretch between wilsons and the haunted house within the hour and i'll bring my own pistols judge driscoll began to walk the floor in a state of pleased excitement But presently he stopped and began to think—began to think of Tom. Twice he moved toward the secretary, and twice he turned away again, and finally he said, "'This may be my last night in the world. I must not take the chance. He is worthless and unworthy, but it is largely my fault. He was entrusted to me by my brother on his dying bed, and I have indulged him to his hurt, instead of training him up severely and making a man of him. I have violated my trust, and I must not add the sin of desertion to that. I have forgiven him once already, and would subject him to a long and hard trial before forgiving him again, if I could live, but I must not run that risk. No, I must restore the will." but if I survive the duel I will hide it away, and he will not know, and I will not tell him until he reforms, and I see that his reformation is going to be permanent." He withdrew the will, and his ostensible nephew was heir to a fortune again. As he was finishing his task Tom, wearied with another brooding tramp, entered the house and went tiptoeing past the sitting-room door. He glanced in and hurried on, for the sight of his uncle was nothing but terrors for him tonight, But his uncle was writing. That was unusual at this late hour. What could he be writing? A chill of anxiety settled down upon Tom's heart. Did that writing concern him? He was afraid so. He reflected that when ill luck begins it does not come in sprinkles but in showers. He said he would get a glimpse of that document or know the reason why. He heard someone coming, and stepped out of sight and hearing. It was Pembroke Howard. What could be hatching? Howard said with great satisfaction, "'Everything's right and ready. He's gone to the battleground with his second, and the surgeon also with his brother. I've arranged it all with Wilson—Wilson's his second. We are to have three shots apiece.' "'Good. How is the moon?' "'Bright as day, nearly. Perfect for the distance—fifty yards no wind, not a breath, hot and still. All good, all first-rate. Here, Pembroke, read this and witness it." Pembroke read and witnessed the will, then gave the old man's hand a hearty shake and said, "'Now, that's right, York, but I knew you would do it. You couldn't leave that poor chap to fight along without means or profession, with certain defeat before him, and I knew you wouldn't, for his father's sake, if not for his own. For his dead father's sake, I couldn't, I know, for poor Percy. But you know what Percy was to me. But mind, Tom is not to know of this unless I fall to-night. I understand. I'll keep the secret.' The judge put the will away, and the two started for the battleground. In another minute the will was in Tom's hands. His misery vanished, his feelings underwent a tremendous revulsion. He put the will carefully back in its place and spread his mouth and swung his hat once, twice, three times around his head, in imitation of three rousing huzzas. no sound issuing from his lips. He fell to communing with himself excitedly and joyously, but every now and then he let off another volley of dumb hurrahs. He said to himself, I've got the fortune again, but I'll not let on that I know about it and this time I'm going to hang on to it. I take no more risks—I'll gamble no more—I'll drink no more, because—well, because I'll not go where there is any part of that sort of thing going on again. It's the sure way—the only sure way. I might have thought of that sooner—well, yes, if I had wanted to. But now, dear me, I've had a scare this time, and I'll take no more chances—not a single chance more. "'Land! I persuaded myself this evening that I could fetch him around without any great amount of effort, but I've been getting more and more heavy-hearted and doubtful straight along ever since. If he tells me about this thing, all right. But if he doesn't, I shan't let on. I—well, I'd like to tell Puddenhead Wilson, but—no, I'll think about that. Perhaps I won't.' He whirled off another dead huzzah and said, i'm reformed and this time i'll stay so sure he was about to close with a final grand silent demonstration when he suddenly recollected that wilson had put it out of his power to pawn or sell the indian knife and that he was once more in awful peril of exposure by his creditors for that reason his joy collapsed utterly and he turned away and moped toward the door moaning and lamenting over the bitterness of his luck He dragged himself upstairs and brooded in his room a long time, disconsolate and forlorn, with Luigi's Indian knife for a text. At last he sighed and said, When I supposed these stones were glass and this ivory bone, the thing hadn't any interest for me because it hadn't any value and couldn't help me out of my trouble. But now—why, now it is full of interest, yes, and of a sort to break a body's heart. It's a bag of gold that has turned to dirt and ashes in my hands. It could save me, and save me so easily, and yet I've got to go to ruin. It's like drowning with a life-preserver in my reach. All the hard luck comes to me, and all the good luck goes to other people. Puddin' Wilson, for instance. Even his career has got a sort of a little start at last. And what has he done to deserve it, I should like to know. Yes, he has opened his own road, but he isn't content with that, but must block mine. It's a sordid selfish world, and I wish I was out of it. He allowed the light of the candle to play upon the jewels of the sheath, but the flashings and sparklings had no charm for his eye. They were only just so many pangs to his heart. I must not say anything to Roxy about this thing, he said. She is too daring— She would be for digging these stones out and selling them, and then, why, she would be arrested and the stones traced, and then—' The thought made him quake, and he hid the knife away, trembling all over and glancing furtively about, like a criminal who fancies that the accuser is already at hand. Should he try to sleep? Oh, no! Sleep was not for him. His trouble was too haunting, too afflicting for that. He must have somebody to mourn with. He would carry his despair to Roxy. He had heard the several distant gunshots, but that sort of thing was not uncommon, and they had made no impression upon him. He went out at the back door and turned westward. He passed Wilson's house and proceeded along the lane, and presently saw several figures approaching Wilson's place through the vacant lots. These were the duelists returning from the fight. He thought he recognized them but as he had no desire for white people's company, he stooped down behind the fence until they were out of his way. Roxy was feeling fine. She said, "'Why was you, child? Why aren't you in it?' "'In what?' "'In a duel.' "'Duel? Has there been a duel? Cause they has. The old judge has been having a duel with one of them twins.' "'Great Scott!' <laughs> then he added to himself, that's what made him remake the will. He thought he might get killed, and he softened him toward me. And that's what he and Howard were so busy about. Oh, dear, if the twin had only killed him, I should be out of my— What is you mumbling about, Chambers? Why was you? Didn't you know they was going to be a duel? No, I didn't. The old man tried to get me to fight one with Count Luigi, but he didn't succeed, so I reckon he concluded to patch up the family honor himself he laughed at the idea and went rambling on with a detailed account of his talk with the judge and how shocked and ashamed the judge was to find that he had a coward in his family he glanced up at last and got a shock himself roxana's bosom was heaving with suppressed passion and she was glowering down upon him with measureless contempt written in her face and you refused to fight a man that kicked you instead of jumping at the chance and you ain't got no more feeling than to come and tell me that fetched such a poor low-down ordinary rabbit into the world. Pa, it, it makes me sick. It's the nigger in you, that's what it is. Thirty-one parts of you is white, and only one part nigger, and that poor little one part is your soul. Taint worth saving, taint worth totin' on a shovel and throwin' in the gutter. You has disgraced your birth. What would your pa think of you? It's enough to make him turn in his grave.' the last three sentences stung tom into a fury and he said to himself that if his father were only alive and in reach of assassination his mother would soon find that he had a very clear notion of the size of his indebtedness to that man and was willing to pay it up in full and would do it too even at risk of his life but he kept this thought to himself that was safest in his mother's present state whatever has come of your essex blood that's what i can't understand and it ain't only just essex blood that's in you not by a long side deed it ain't my great-great-great-grandfather and yo great-great-great-great-grandfather was old cap'n john smith de highest blood that old Virginia ever turned out and his great-great-grandmother or summers along back da was pocahontas de injun queen and her husband was a nigger king out in africa and yet there you is, a-slinking out in a duel and disgracing our whole line like an ordinary low-down hound. Yes, it's the nigger in you." She sat down on her candle-box and fell into a reverie. Tom did not disturb her. He sometimes lacked prudence, but it was not in circumstances of this kind—Roxana's storm went gradually down. But it died hard, and even when it seemed to be quite gone, it would now and then break out in a distant rumble, so to speak in the form of muttered ejaculations. One of these was, "'Ain't nigger enough in him to show in his fingernails, and that takes mighty little. Yet nays enough to pain his soul.' Presently she muttered, "'Yes, sir, enough to paint a whole thimble full of them.' At last her rambling ceased altogether, and her countenance began to clear, a welcome sight to Tom, who had learned her moods, and knew she was on the threshold of good humor now. He noticed that from time to time she unconsciously carried her finger to the end of her nose. He looked closer, and said, "'Why, Mammy, the end of your nose is skinned. How did that come?' She sent out the sort of wholehearted peal of laughter which God has vouchsafed in its perfection to none but the happy angels in heaven and the bruised and broken black slave on earth, and said, "'Dad, fetch that duel! I've been in it myself. Gracious, did a bullet do that?' Yes, sir, you bet it did. Well, I declare, why, how did that happen? Happened this way I is settin' here kinda dozin' in the dark, and chabang goes a gun right out there. I skips along out towards t'other side of the house to see what's goin' on, and stops by the old winder on, on the side towards Puddin' Head Wilson's house that ain't got no sash in it, but they ain't none of them got any sashes for that's concerned. And I stood there in the dark and look out and in the moonlight, right down under me is one of the twins a cussin, not much, but just a cussin soft. It is the brown one that is a cussin, cause he is hittin the shoulder, and Dr. Claypool he is a workin' at him, and puttin' Wilson he's a helpin', and old Judge Driscoll and Pem Howard is a standin' out yonder a little piece waitin' for him to get ready again, and Trackley Day uh, squared off and, and give the word, and bang-bang went the pistols, and the twin he say, "'Ouch!' hit him on the hand this time, and I hear that same bullet go spat again the logs under the winder, and the next time they shoot the twins say, ouch again, and I done it too, cause the bullet glance on his cheekbone and skip up here and glance on the side of the winder and and whiz right across my face and, and tuck the hide off my nose. Why, if I'd been a, just an inch or an inch and a half further, it would tucked the whole nose and disfigured me. Well, here's the bullet. I hunted her up.' "'Did you stand there all the time?' "'That's a question to ask, ain't it? What else would I do? Does I get a chance to see a duel every day?' "'Why, you were right in range. Weren't you afraid?' The woman gave a sniff of scorn. "'Fraid! The Smith Pocahontases ain't afraid of nothing, let alone bullets. They've got pluck enough, I suppose. What they lack is judgment. I wouldn't have stood there. Nobody's accusing you. Did anybody else get hurt?' "'Yes. We all got hit, cept the blonde twin and the doctor and the seconds. "'The judge didn't get hurt, but I hear Puddin'head say the bullet snipped some of his hair off.' "'George,' said Tom to himself, "'to come so near being out of my trouble and miss it by an inch. "'Oh, dear, dear, he will live to find me out and sell me to some nigger trader yet. "'Yes, and he would do it in a minute,' then he said aloud in a grave tone, "'Mother, we are in an awful fix.' Roxana caught her breath with a spasm and said, "'Char, what you hit a body so sudden for like that? What's been and to happen?' "'Well, there's one thing I didn't tell you. When I wouldn't fight, he tore up the will again, and—' Roxanne's face turned a dead white, and she said, "'Now you's done, done forever, that's the end. Both and us is going to starve to—' No, wait, and hear me through, can't you? I reckon that when he resolved to fight himself—' He thought he might get killed, and not have a chance to forgive me any more in this life. So he made the will again, and I've seen it, and it's all right. But— Oh, thank goodness! Then we safe again! safe. And so what did you want to come here and talk such dreadful— Hold on, I tell you, and let me finish. The swag I gathered won't half square me up, and the first thing we know, my creditors— Well, you know what'll happen. Roxana dropped her chin and told her son to leave her alone. She must think this matter out. Presently she said impressively, "'You got to go mighty careful now, I tell you, and here's what you got to do. He didn't get killed, and if you gives him the least reason he'll bust the will again, and that's the last time, now hear me. So you's got to show him what you can do in the next few days.' you got to be pison good and let him see it you got to do everything that'll make him believe in you and you got to sweeten round old aunt pratt too she's powerful strong with the judge and the best friend you got next you go long way to st louis and dat will keep him in your favor and then you go and make a bargain with them people you tell em he ain't gwine to live long and that's the fact too and tell him you'll pay him interest, and big interest, too. Ten per—what uh, you call it. Ten percent a month? That's it. Then you take and sell your truck round, little at a time, and pay the interest. How long will it last? I think there's enough to pay the interest five or six months. Then you's all right. If he don't die in six months, that don't make no difference. Providence'll provide. You's going to be safe if you behaves.' She bent an austere eye on him, and added, and you is going to behave. Does you know that? He laughed and said he was going to try anyway. She did not unbend. She said gravely, "Tryin' ain't the ting. You's gwine to do it. You ain't gwine to steal a pin, cause it ain't safe no more. And you ain't gwine into no bad company, not even once. You understand? And you ain't gwine to drink a drop, nary a single drop. And you ain't gwine to gamble one single gamble, not one." and this ain't what you's gwine to try to do, it's what you's gwine to do, and I'll tell you how I knows it. This is how. I's gwine to follow along to St. Louis my own self, and you's gwine to come to me every day of your life, and I'll look you over, and if you fails in one single one dem things—just one—I take my oath I'll come straight down to this town and tell the judge you's a nigger and a slave, and prove it. She paused to let her words sink home. Then she added, "'Chambers, does you believe me when I says that?' Tom was sober enough now. There was no levity in his voice when he answered, "'Yes, mother, I know now that I am reformed, and permanently—permanently, and beyond the reach of any human temptation. Then glong home and begin.' End of chapter 14